0: Hello. Welcome, everybody, to our monthly AIDS seminar. Just a few details, orders of business before we get started. The activity code for today is XAD9 over here on the wall. Um, Reminder to the nurses that they must attend 80% of the program in order to get credit. And um, I'll do the conflict of interest thing in a minute, I guess. Um, we're very pleased today to have Dr. Francine Cornos with us from Columbia University, where she is professor of clinical psychiatry. Um, those of us who attended the National Ryan White Meeting, the clinical <laughs> meeting earlier this year, had the opportunity to hear Dr. Kornos. Um, and felt like she would be a good person to come speak with our group. She has uh, many years of clinical experience, and also, I've just learned today, um, has extensive experience leading the uh, different AIDS education and training centers currently, the uh, Caribbean, Northeast Caribbean AIDS Education and Training Center, and prior to that, the um, Northeast, I'm sorry, the um, New York and New Jersey uh, Age Education Training Center, which is a very large operation, which you've led for many years. So uh, we're very pleased that she was able to come with us today. She has no conflicts of interest. Uh, the other conflicts we have to disclose is that my husband is a consultant for SPARK Partners, and Dr. Marsh receives research uh, grant support from Gilead, or some support from Gilead, apparently. A consulting support. Sorry for the correction. So, um, with that, Dr. Kornos, thank you for coming, and I've given her a little background about our uh, our care environment here. So, feel free. I hope you can ask lots of questions.
1: Um, Thank you for having me. Is this on? Can you hear me? Uh, And uh, you'll notice I have a strong New York accent, um, being a lifelong New Yorker, but I do know that New Hampshire is one of the most beautiful places in the country, so congratulations to those of you who live here. Um, And uh, please, even though this is a, um, you know, a seminar in which all of you are sitting at these tables, and i um, here with the PowerPoint slide set, please feel free to interrupt me if there's something you want to ask me. Um, so this is a presentation about the strengths and weaknesses of screening approaches to mental illness, um, how to select tools to use to screen that are practical, and how to, the follow, how to follow the steps of the mental illness treatment cascade after a positive screen. Um, So one of the things that, the longer I've done psychiatry, the more I've come to understand that the best thing that could ever happen to psychiatry is we would eliminate the term mental illness. It would just become another set of medical disorders. Um, Sadly, the brain and, and the other organs of the body are in constant interaction with one another. There isn't almost anything that happens in the brain that isn't expressed in the body, and there isn't anything in the body that isn't expressed in the brain. So by carving out an artificial idea that there's something called mental illness and it's in your head, we create a very mistaken impression of mental disorders. And that's why um, people come with somatic complaints all the time to medical settings who have really a mental disorder. I even hate the term behavioral health more. I think it came along to include substance use disorders. But um, mental illness may have little to to do uh, with it, it, it emphasizes the behavioral aspect instead of the somatic aspects, which I think are just as important. Um, mental disorders, the way it's defined either if you're using the DSM-5 or the ICD-10, uh, really include substance use and uh, cognitive disorders as well. So I'm just going to use the term mental disorders. And the main thing I always like to say to an audience is, if you remember nothing else I say, uh, people die in all kinds of settings because they fail to differentiate an agitated person with delirium from an agitated person with psychosis. Uh, I've, I've done a fair amount of international training uh, and also at my own medical center. Every center is different. I trained at NYU where we assumed people had a medical problem before we, took, we gathered it was a mental health problem. Uh, I'm at, now at Columbia University where they do the reverse. Anybody behaves abnormally, they get a psychiatrist to come. This is really not a good way to practice medicine because a lot of abnormal behavior can be related to delirium and people with delirium can be dying. So the one thing to know is that when someone's mental status changes, you always want to think of what may be medically causing it. Um, So this was a question that I used for my presentation uh, at the conference, and uh, so there's a a 47-year-old woman with AIDS, schizophrenia, and diabetes, and she presents with worsening hallucinations. This is a real case. Uh, What's the first thing you should do? Ask her when she stopped her psychiatric medication, refer her to the on-site psychiatrist, check her blood sugar, or assess for medication drug interactions. Anybody? Any takers? Blood sugar, right. So you guys, and I guess I also led into it, yes. This was a woman who uh, was diabetic and her blood sugar was 600 when this happened to her. And this is one of the things you see with mental illness. Often people who have a well-known established mental illness when they're medically unwell have an exacerbation of their mental illness symptoms. So even when there's established a mental illness, you wanna first figure out if someone suddenly has a change whether it could be explained by a medical condition. After her blood sugar was brought back uh, in the normal range, the the hallucinations went away. Um, On the one hand, I just want to say, on the one hand, I love the continuum of care, the HIV continuum of care. It's been there since 2011. And on the other hand, I think the time has come to step away from it a bit. And why do I say that? Because if you look at morbidity and mortality right now from HIV, a lot of it is not related to HIV anymore. Hardly anybody's dying of HIV, and right now most people with HIV are dying of something else, of which hepatitis C and suicide are way up there. Nonetheless, because of our obsession with the cascade, we usually try to figure out if a mental illness is interfering with adhering to the steps of the HIV care cascade. Um, and uh, when it comes to so, uh, and most of these uh, things that have been demonstrated are have been demonstrated for depression and hazardous substance use. Those are the two disorders that really make a difference in the HIV care cascade. Um, that is to say, they're associated with failure to start treatment, to adhere to treatment, slower virologic suppression uh, on with depression, faster vi- virologic failure, and substance use and increased HIV risk behavior. But I do want to point out that chronic depressive symptoms are associated with increased morbidity and mortality from every medical illness, including HIV. Treating depression isn't about treating a mental illness. It's about treating a medical comorbidity of HIV infection that shortens lifespan. Um, and I think if we understood that better and presented it better to patients that way, they'd be more likely to accept our treatment. I have a colleague who does HIV care uh, and mental health care in, in India named Vikram Patel. He's like Mr. International Mental Health. And what he says to patients when they present with medical, when, with uh, depression and anxiety is, you know, you have a stress disorder. He doesn't even use this, you know, the psychiatric label. He says, you have a stress disorder. Do you feel under stress? Well, how many people in this room would say yes? Well, you've developed a stress disorder. And he finds that there's a much better acceptance of um, treating common, what we call common mental disorders, which is to say trauma, anxiety, depression, uh, if you explain to people that it comes from stress, whether this is true or not, mind you. Um because it, t- it, it reduces the stigma of mental illness. Why screen? Screening increases the uh, detection rates of um, mental illness in an HIV setting, but it also overcomes stigma. If you're a site that screens everybody for something, then you're not saying, oh, you, you look mentally ill. You know, you're just routinely doing screening. Um, and because... Uh, depression is the second most disabling illness in in the world, actually, both in the developed and developing world. Uh, It's also a cause of incredible loss of quality of life and disability. So, separate from HIV, it's a a really important illness to treat. Um, People with men with HIV infection have higher rates of mental illness. I've been in this business doing this since 1983. So, I was treating a population of people with severe mental illness when they started getting hit very early in the epidemic by HIV infection, which was surprising to us. Um, So, I began talking about it early in the epidemic, how much mental illness travels with risk for HIV infection in that population. But if you look at all the populations who are most, most vulnerable to getting HIV infection, they all have high rates of mental disorders. If you talk about people who've gotten HIV from injection drug use, 100% have an addictive disorder in most studies, usually opioid addiction. So that means 100% of your inject- injection drug users have a mental disorder, and substance use disorders are comorbid with other mental disorders. Uh, and uh, for men who have sex with men, the population currently that's most at risk for HIV infection in this country now All the conditions of growing up as, you know, outside of the mainstream of heterosexual life lead to various forms of abuse and um, mistreatment that increases risk for mental disorders. And these are just some numbers I put together. They're not great in the sense that Um, I'm comparing some very good studies to some very sloppy studies, but (laughs) the U.S. general population studies are very good. The ones of people with HIV are much less good, but it looks like if you look at alcohol (laughs) use disorders, current use looks similar in the HIV population as it does in the general population, but past addiction is much higher. And, of course, that past addiction to alcohol is important because you know, people have often done a lot of damage to their livers or their central nervous system or some other organ that we're thinking about in managing their multiple comorbidities. And it looks similar for injection drug use where a lot of the injection drug use is in the past, but you know, the, we see all the sequelae of very high rates of lifetime of uh, drug use disorders and in the case of injection drug use with uh, hepatitis C. so. When early on in the epidemic, what I came to realize is that if you run a program for people with HIV infection, you are by default running a mental health and substance use program. Um, And I will say this. People who treat HIV are much more tolerant of people with mental health and substance use disorders than the average medical program. I think that's one of the most wonderful things. Having started early when there was like a sense of, well, we have to treat everybody. Uh, We can't reject anybody. I think, you know, people in HIV care have learned to tolerate a lot of um, difficult behavior as part of the mission of delivering care. (laughs) Um, We don't have a lot of information on um, other disorders, but, for example, if you look at current depression, it tends to be, on average, I put in the range of findings, but on average in most programs, about 30% of people will meet the criteria for clinical depression rather than just some depressive symptoms. and PTSD is way higher in people with HIV infection. Um, from it, it, in the general population it's about 8%, although there it's about 12% women, 4% men. It's much more in women than men, um, but lifetime is very high in the people we treat. Um, I hope I'm not talking too fast. You know, I'm a New Yorker and we have to do everything fast. We have to walk fast into it. So, of course, we can't screen for all mental disorders and we're making a decision about what's most common. Uh, And um, there are no perfect screening instruments. They all have limitations in terms of sensitivity and specificity. And often we need to do further evaluation to really know for sure um, what mental disorder somebody has. But the thing about screening is that it's truly useless if there's nothing that follows it. <laughs> so I don't bother with screening in a setting where nothing will happen. Um, just because you could save people the time of doing it. Uh, if it you re- there's a cascade for mental illness treatment that looks just like the HIV care cascade. They're linked to care, retained in care, get treatment that works, right? So um, it, it has to um, have all those other elements. There's been very little funding for mental health and HIV research. Um, Therefore, we don't really know. Let's say you take a finding, like depression is associated with increased mortality, but are there studies to show that if you treat depression, that increase goes away? No, there are not. There are some emerging studies in other illnesses that suggest, uh, for example, in general, there was one study done in England for general medical care for chronic illness that showed that treating depression Um, brought the lifespans of depressed people closer to the norm for the rest of the population. Because as I say, when you look at depressed people in medical care, their lifespan is shorter. These are the most common um, disorders that we tend to screen for. And a screening instrument in primary care should be short, easily scored, free. Um, It's great when there's evidence that it actually works with the primary care population, and it's great when people can uh, easily administer it or can be self-administered. Nonetheless, having done work in different (coughs) settings, you know, different cultures have different thresholds for what they will report. So there's really nothing perfect. Um, Probably one of the most widely screened instruments is uh, the prime md 2 or the PHQ2. It's the same two questions, but there are two ways of doing it: one by giving it a score um, from, one to six, from zero to six points, the other by asking yes or no. turns out, by the way, that if you do the PH, it's good to do the PHQ-2 and not just the PHQ-9. The reason being. There's evidence to suggest that if you do that two-step procedure, you get better sensitivity and specificity for depression, and you're also going to save yourself a lot of time since many people are going to answer no to the first two questions, and then you don't have to ask the other seven. What did I just do? That was terrible. Um, So in the PHQ-9, the first two questions are the same as the PHQ-2, and then you start seeing some of the somatic questions come up. The things that suggest there's an abnormality in um, circadian rhythm or that there's incredible fatigue. Um, And so there you see both (laughs) psychological and um, somatic symptoms. I have to say, although they're not part of the... criteria for diagnosing depression. People with depression have lots of somatic symptoms that aren't part of the criteria. They could be complaining of everything. And in different cultures, they complain of different things. Like, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, in some countries, people complain of burning in the head. You know, so there's also a cultural element to how people present. The main thing that I think is tricky about screening for depression is that we want to make sure there isn't a medical reason why the person is depressed and there are lots of medicines with depression as a side effect. Uh, and, um, you know, then there are the common medical problems like hypothyroidism, men with hypogonadism, even though it's not, primar- it's not primarily a cause of depression, <coughs> it's, more, it's more, you know, loss of muscle mass. And, but nonetheless, we just want to make sure if we can, if, we, if we're prescribing something that's making the person depressed, you know, stopping it would be the best approach if we can. Um, and the other difficult part, in fact, there's nothing easy about mental health. So the reason why there's nothing easy about mental health is that we have no biological tests for mental disorders that we can reliably use on a day-to-day basis. If I have diabetes and I present with um, you know, tremendous thirst and urination, or I present with um, so, some sort of like, inf- you know, vaginal infection, right? those are two very different symptoms. But the way we know they're linked is we do a blood sugar test, and they're both related to diabetes. We have nothing like that. So all of the diverse presentations we see, um, we classify as different disorders. Who knows what people really have wrong with them? And every theory we have about neurotransmitters turns out to have, you know, some some, uh, people who are skeptical. So all I can say is that right now, we are unfortunately busy describing the symptoms we see without understanding what underlies them. So one of the problems with the diagnosis of depression is that some people have bipolar disorder. And the reason why you want to know that is that if you give an antidepressant to someone who has bipolar disorder, you might precipitate mania. So you kind of don't want to do it if you can avoid it, because um, mood stabilizers are the drug of choice. So So it's often good to ask if there's a family or past history of mania, if the patient has ever had mania. Um, or a, a question or two about it. I didn't list all the possible questions. You just want to you know, be alert to the fact that a mani- a, 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 you know, people with bipolar disorder, either they come to treatment when they're so manic that they're causing a public disturbance, or for the people who don't get there they like be- and like being manic, they come when they're depressed. You know? So you're seeing people at the depressive phase of bipolar disorder uh, and you don't want to precipitate mania. The most problematic question on the PHQ-9 is do you have thoughts that you would be better off dead or hurting yourself in some way? When people do research, they don't use the uh, PHQ-9, rather they use the PHQ-8 and they delete the last question because researchers don't want people telling them that they feel suicidal. When someone says yes to that question, you need to do something with it. So, um, and that's really where you need, you know, some sophistication either yourself or from a mental health um, professional and it's important to know that you don't increase risk uh, of suicide by talking about it with people. And I'm not suggesting this as a screening tool at all, but I just wanted to put it here. This is a uh, um, you know, risk for committing suicide scale. And I just wanted to tell you that one of the ways we do it in psychiatry is we look to see how much of it is just passive thinking about it versus an active plan to do it. And we are especially concerned when there's a past history of acting. Because even you know a, a, a suicide attempt that didn't have any risk of actually killing the person is a predictor of successful suicide attempts. So um, that's what we're thinking. What, most people with severe depression do wish they were dead. You can't assume everybody who wishes they were dead was suicidal. Um, is suicidal. So you, know, you, wanna, you want to differentiate that kind of thinking, which goes along with pre- depressive ideation uh, from uh, someone with a real threat. We don't typically um, screen for generalized anxiety disorder, but you might want to do it with people who have a lot of anxiety symptoms. It's a very common disorder. Um, it's not associated with non-adherence to medication. Uh, you know, it could sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but it averages out. Probably because anxious people are worried about their health, and some subgroup of them are very conscientious. Um, but nonetheless, you'll be thrilled you'll be thrilled to know that in psychiatry we use antidepressants for everything, all symptoms. They're good for depression, they're good for anxiety, they're good for PTSD. Yes, one size fits all. And so regardless of whether you're treating depression or anxiety, if you're using a medicine, um, the medicines work well for all of them. We try to avoid anything other than short-term use of benzodiazepines. I can talk about that. Uh, There are some people who need them and benefit from them. It should not be an absolute But for long-term chronic illness, we really try to use antidepressants. So this is a good screen for it. And these screens I'm showing you are very well studied in primary care. And if you want to, you can look at the sensitivity and specificity of them. And the other thing I wanted to tell you is that um, I'm on the mental health component of a national curriculum that the AETC is developing. It's supposed to go live in May. And when it comes out... Um, Anybody who wants to use it will be able to, and all of these tools and more are online and can be scored right online. Um, So that's going to be, I think, a very nice thing. Um, This is the PTSD screen that most people use in primary care. It was uh, developed for combat veterans. It's my impression that it works better for combat veterans than it does for women. but uh, there isn't really anything that's any better than this. And uh, so it asks you, first, criterion A. PTSD is the only illness for which you have to have ex- experienced an external event. There is no other illness that you know, is in that category, right? So that's the first question. Have you ever had any experience that was so uh, frightening or horrible? And then these, three, these four questions tap into the different domains. Nightmares. You try not to think about it. You're in God. Watchful, easily startled. or you feel numb and detached from others? The last question is people um, answer it yes less commonly than the other questions, but it's a it's a marker of severity. So people who are, who feel numb usually have more severe PTSD. Um, this is the audit C. I like to use I like to use just questions about, in my own practice, I like to ask very neutral questions about how much do you drink. Now obviously you don't always get an honest answer. Um, Sometimes I do couples therapy and then then you're more likely to get an honest answer because the other person who's watching, the the person who's drinking knows how much they drink. Um, And the reason why I like it is just the amount someone's drinking is that it allows you to move away from saying too much like you're drinking too much, to a much more neutral position, which is the amount you're drinking is is hazardous to your health. And I have found that goes over a lot better. I'm not saying it's too much or too little. And uh, there are, you know, uh, little cards you can get that list what WHO recommends. I'm just on the limit of its recommendation. We women are only allowed to have one drink a day. Uh, 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 I mean, well, we're allowed to have seven drinks in a week. So, uh, if you have one drink every day, that's it, that's me. I have a glass of wine, that's it. I'm not supposed to have anything more. Uh, And no more than three drinks in any one time. For men, until the age of 65, it's twice that, 14 drinks a week. And for men over 65, sadly, it goes down to seven drinks a week. I'm not saying most people stay within that limit, or even that it's so bad to go above that limit. Not everybody believes in everything. The World Health Organization says yes. Um, They don't change it for women over 65, but maybe it should be changed. Um, So when I have my glass of wine, I make my husband measure it. We we always have a drink at night. Measure my glass of wine. Just make sure. Glass is defined as five ounces, but I do it as four. Because, you you know, a drink could be a drink this size, right? So it's not just a drink. There's a definition of a drink. So what I'll show patients is the definition of a drink and how much drinking is safe. I do not get into is it too much or too little. I just treat it as it's not really good for your health. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of evidence that when physicians tell people that that they're drinking an amount that's not good for their health, some people will change you know, just from that alone. This is the DAS-10, and it really is about all substances, and you'll recognize, if you're familiar with other instruments, that it incorporates some of the other items, like from the four-item cage. Uh, And this is a a well-established instrument. And all of these instruments, when you go to where they're scored, will, you know, score, uh, they're free to use, the scores are The way to score is online and it'll also tell you if someone has a mild, moderate, or severe problem. So, the scoring makes it very helpful to understand not only is it there, but the severity. Okay, and this is the rest of the... um, These are the rest of the the questions on the DAS-10. There are no practical screening tools for ch- kids. I don't know how many people see kids. F- fortunately, there are many fewer children with HIV infection now. Um, but uh, almost all instruments that are good to use in children cost money to use unless you violate somebody's copyright. Um, people do that. People violate copyrights all the time to do these, these uh, kinds of screenings in resource-poor countries. Um, but uh, they are largely copyrighted instruments, and that's not true in the adult population where there are great free screening instruments. There are no screening instruments for um, you know, either asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment, obviously because it's asymptomatic, or for um, you know, mild neurocognitive impairment. There's really nothing. Um, all there is is screening for dementia. And um, if you look at recent reviews on it, nothing holds up well. You know, know, people have tried the MOCA with Montreal Cognitive Assessment. It doesn't really help. Um, There's just too little sensitivity and specificity. If you're just trying to figure out if someone has severe impairment, you can just ask a couple of questions. And these are pretty well correlated with dementia. Um, So you can see what they are. And then, of course, there are scales, again, that they're for dementia. They are not for milder forms of impairment. And um, when the uh, you know, national curriculum comes out, you will find that there's... Um, you, you can use some of these online. So let's talk a little bit about the mental illness treatment cascade, um, which looks, as I said, just like the uh, HIV care cascade. There's good evidence that if all you do is screen for, let's say, depression, there are now studies that show, screening for depression is a pretty ineffective intervention. Why? Because very few people follow up. It really doesn't work if that's all you want to do. Regardless of the, uh, you know, the fact that it's now recommended uh, as, you know, as, a screen, you know, as an aspect of assessing quality of care in an HIV setting, uh, it doesn't work by itself. People with mental illness are, by and large, very undertreated. These were the most, these, these were the most recent statistics I could find <laughs> that were really good. Um, that showed that uh, in, the, in the 90s, about 20% of people were getting treatment for mental illness and now it's about, um, 30%, 30, about a third of people between 2001-2003. The people most likely to get treat, treatment are the people causing trouble, visibly. You know, if you have a psychotic disorder, you're more likely to be treated. The people least likely to be treated are people using substances. The benefits, the health insurance for it, are dreadful. So that the vast majority of all people with substance use disorders receive no treatment whatsoever. I'm not going to go into it, but there are attempts to try to get some kinds of, you know, treatment for the more moderate problems like, uh, you know, uh, into primary care through SBIRT, you know, screening and brief intervention. Uh, But basically, these are disorders that go largely, highly untreated. Very few screens allow you to make a diagnosis. Um, Maybe the PHQ-9 is an exception to it if you get really high scores. I would say somebody with very high scores on the PHQ-9, you can be pretty sure that that's a depressive diagnosis. It's when you get moderate and mild symptoms that... It's hard to be sure without a further evaluation. Um, there are better instruments to make diagnoses, but I can tell you, having done some research, if you want to make a diagnosis using questionnaires that, that people use in research, it takes you a good hour of your time. You don't want that in, in clinical care, so um, these research instruments don't help practicing in, clinical, in, in ordinary clinical care the other thing related to our not understanding what underlying illnesses are is that we have tremendous comorbidity because we, we because we don't have the underlying cause so for example you could have a depressive disorder and an anxiety disorder and a personality disorder and god knows what else you know you see people with five and six diagnoses and it's an And and that's because we can't really unify our diagnostic system uh, because we're depending on expression of mental illness, not on underlying cause. Um, The other thing is our diagnostic categories are relatively crude. There are plenty of patients who wind up in nobody 's diagnostic category, and that 's why we have specifications like not otherwise specified for various disorders, uh, and not every patient is willing or able to give you reliable information and because we have no biologic tests, we are really relying on people giving us information and You can be fooled by what people say, uh, and often at least you know in, in psychiatry work practicing in an emergency room, you love it when the person comes with a family member um, because that additional history is often really what you need if they give you permission to talk to the family member. I did that again. Sorry. So there's, there's no doubt that the ease with which someone is linked to mental health care is related to how well it just flows from the other care you're providing them. So if it flows because the practitioner who's doing the HIV care can also prescribe an antidepressant, not that everyone with depression needs an antidepressant, but uh, the patient is more likely to take it from their primary care provider than most people don't want to see a psychiatrist. They absolutely do not want to go. Um, so theres I, I don't know if you use this model, but there's something that uh, is... Uh, that the American Psychiatric Association has received a lot of federal funding to do, which is teach psychiatrists how to do collaborative care. It's like a cross between seeing a patient and just doing a consultation at a distance where the primary care physician has a nurse, usually a nurse manager, but it could be somebody, it could be a social work manager, who actually tracks patients, does the diagnostic screening, does the screening tests, uh, knows how to do further work to do diagnosis, Um, and really is carrying most of the burden of the mental health care. It's not on the primary care practitioner who's usually very busy. So what happens in that kind of environment is that that manager, let's say it's a nurse, that nurse manager meets once a week with a psychiatrist who reviews cases that she's unsure about. Um, And this was originally studied by someone named Caton and published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was for people who had diabetes, hypertension, and depression. Those were the three things they targeted. Depression is very common in diabetes, as it is in all medical illness. So, um, and the nurse manager learned how to uh, uh, treat those, you know, how to diagnose and treat those conditions. And another thing I wanted to um, raise that comes up that's very interested about collaborative care is the whole concept of treating to target. That is to say, what's the criteria for knowing someone is better? In depression, we have response and remission. Response is that 50% of your symptoms are reduced by 50%. You could still be very depressed, though, and impaired by that. The remission is you have very low levels of symptoms. So uh, when, if, you, if you, you're following people according to the PHQ-9, or whatever you're doing, you, know, you can see what kind of reduction you're getting in symptoms. And that allows you to make a more objective criteria about how well the patient is and whether they're better. So it's good to have you know, ways to measure that. So for example, these nurses who are managing patients, they had a blood pressure goal, they had a hemoglobin A1c goal, and they had a, a PHQ-9 goal. And that made it more realistic to actually follow people. Oh, and just, uh, uh, I didn't mention that, you know, there's on-site integrated care, you know, where you send them to someone else who's working in your setting. It's not the primary care practitioner. And, um, there, and there are various degrees of integration of it. I'm, I'm on the board of a fellow qual- qualified health center. It's a very busy place. And sometimes it's very hard, even though people are in the same place, to get them to really coordinate what they're doing. Um, And then uh, there's co-located care, like, you know, you're in a hospital setting, and down the block in the same hospital, there's care. Uh, That's often very disconnected, though. Um, Then there's case management to try to link people to care. I don't know to what extent you have that. And then there's off-site referral. Here's a a, uh, referral, go see Dr. So-and-so, and and people generally don't go. and then you get back after that cascade to you live in a desert, there's nobody else to do it, so you do it. And I have to say that I've learned a lot about the flexibility of clinicians to be able to multitask and do more than one thing from working in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's a, really, there's a huge shortage of people doing uh, uh, health care altogether, and you're really trying to teach way- people ways of delivering HIV care and mental health care, for example, nurses. Um, and true, it's not as sophisticated as what we do, but you're really trying to teach people to be flexible about understanding how to treat the basics. I'm not going to read this, just some of the things that um, help you to retain people in HIV, in mental health care. And um, we're starting to use, we're starting to involve people in their own care more, as I think we are in HIV and, and in diabetes. We're learning. The person who needs to have the biggest commitment toward, the, toward their own wellness is the patient. The patient doesn't have it. Nothing you do will get them to adhere to treatment in the long run. And we're trying to do that in mental health as well. You know, We're trying to help people understand your own health is something you have the most control over. We have a lot less control than you do. Um, and we teach people self-management schools, uh, skills and, and things they can do that are not medical um, that might help. I 'll give you one example in ptSD there's some evidence that if you do things that tap into the parasympathetic nervous system as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system, you know things like meditation, mindfulness, um, you can calm down people's you know um, autonomic responses uh, that, that use the sympathetic nervous system uh, and uh, I, I i I got this little Jem, I want to stop with 15 minutes for um, discussion. But I got this little gem from reading a book about dialectical behavior therapy, but, uh, written by Marsha Linehan, who has borderline personality disorder herself and has written about it. She said when she was really out of control, the very best thing she could do was fill up a basin with very cold water, put her whole head to it, in it, including her eyes. Um, this invokes what's called the porpoise response. Porpoises, when they put their heads in the water, we don't have the degree of response, they do. When they put their heads in the water, their parasympathetic nervous system kicks in so they can spend more time under the water searching for food. Um, it, 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 you know, you're using less energy when your parasympathetic nervous system is, uh, in, you know, is invoked. Um, when she would, According to Marsha Lanahan, she puts her head in cold water totally turns off her out-of-control response. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to people when you're worried about their heart rate going down, because that's one of the things it does. But it's kind of interesting to realize that, you know, we are talking about the autonomic nervous system when we're talking about helping people manage um, anxiety and depression. And the parasympathetic nervous system works a lot better for the control of a- anxiety than when you have your fight-or-flight response going. I think this is my last slide. According to the World Health Organization, the, the uh, their, their latest findings, the number one cause of di- disability is back pain. Uh, depression is number two. And even though it's actually not so easy to treat depression because, you know, our drugs don't always, the first time we use a drug, it's not necessarily going to work. It's gonna ha- maybe it has side effects. Maybe it doesn't achieve enough efficacy. <laughs> depression's still easier to treat than back pain. Um, and, uh, and uh, uh, no, I, I think I will use this one, sl- this one last slide, in fact. So it said, I don't know why I'm not getting back to it, but that's okay. Yeah. Risk for cardiovascular disease. What is it most strongly associated with? Anybody, anybody? I have... Tobacco. So when you go to an HIV conference, and I go to a lot of them, and people talk about cardiovascular disease, they almost never mention smoking. That's why I think we have to get beyond the care cascade. You know, people are not dying because they've had HIV for a long time, um, particularly, I mean, maybe lifespan is shortened by having HIV by by a, a small number of years, just in and of itself. But tobacco smoking is synergistic with HIV in its shortening of lifespan. Um, if you you lose more years to life to smoking tobacco, if you also have HIV, than if you don't have HIV, so um, that's the kind of thing that you know we go to presentations, we hear all about you know the antiretroviral medicines and what cardiovascular disease looks like and people's you know lipids and um, the primary uh, underlying threat to people's health, which is smoking, often does not get addressed. Smoking is a mental illness. And half of all cigarettes are smoked by people with another mental illness besides tobacco addiction. And that's because all mental illness travels with all other mental illness. Um, So if you're a smoker, you're much more likely to have another mental illness than if you're not. And that's it. That's it for me. So I wanted to leave time for questions and comments. I'm happy to start off. Yes.
0: Hey, I'll just mention that we, our program has done a lot of work with smoking sensation that our nurses really, really bought into that.
1: That's so great.
0: Um, so in terms of some of the early feedback for our uh, tablet screen that we're doing, um, the DAST 10 is 10 questions. So it's the longest part. It does not deep reflex into a shorter... Uh, question series, and we saw one uh, example where someone was using a gast 2 so just two anxiety questions that would reflex. But you didn't mention that as one of the
1: there, there are, there are. There's something I think it's called the TICS, the T-I-C-S. That's two questions about substance use. Okay. And it's decent. Um, I, I didn't mention that one. Uh, but you don't, you, no, you don't, you can do a shorter version. We'll look for that. TICS. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's called the TICS, the T-I-C-S. But if if I'm wrong about that, email me and I'll figure out what it really is called. Okay,
0: thank you. Do you you have thoughts about the use of uh, tablets or self-administered as opposed to Um, otherwise-administered
1: question? Say that again, the use of what?
0: So we're using the tablets to administer
1: so it's self-administered. Ah, self administered. Yes. You know what? I, I, I think, you know, it turns out if you look at uh, sexual behavior, people give much more honesty, honest answers when you give them a tablet and they're not talking to a person. I don't, I don't know what the evidence is for substance use on that, but I would guess that you probably have a better chance if a person's literate and can really read of getting honest answers when you don't have to tell another person. So I would say probably it's, it's not only saving you time, you know, but it's also, you might get more truthful responses. Again, I don't know the entire literature on that, and I don't know how much literature there is, but I, I think it's great um, to use tablet responses, and especially if the tablet can also score for you. You know, so then you're skipping the scoring step.
0: It does do the scoring
2: automatically.
1: Right, right. And. Uh, you know, and so it, it makes it much faster, and it allows you to, you know, talk to the person about things that they've said, basically, but to a tablet instead of to you. Yes.
2: Can you speak out to, um, you know, I'm new to Dartmouth, I've been here about four months, and this is the second presentation I've attended where the presenter is speaking about the benefit of the Healthcare provider speaking mutually about, you know, the assessment of alcohol use or depressive symptoms or stuff that's generally otherwise stigmatized, and that speaking mutually and professionally as part of kind of the same way I'd ask about your sugar intake or your exercise. You know what I mean? Um, are there numbers to kind of back that up? I mean, is there, I guess, I'm, I'm thinking you know, we have all these great treatment things that we want to offer, right? Yeah, and patients may or may not engage. And so I'm
1: thinking, like, how do we increase the engagement? Yes, yes. So, you know, um, there's so. If you look at the HIV care cascade and you go to the earliest steps in it, right, linked to care, engaged in care, there's so little research about, what, about the mental health component of that and what engages people in care. Um, I think. Everybody is moving to a more neutral way to, to discuss dif- difficult topics because we know we scare people off. But in order to really prove that we're making a big difference, you'd have to study it, you know, and there isn't a lot of study of it. Uh, certainly, you know, um, it's been suggested for domestic violence that, you know, it'd be asked automatically. And I have to say, um, I was really, you know, I, I have a daughter who lives in Alaska. I went to an emergency room after falling and doing something to my shoulder, and the nurse there said, do you feel safe at home? And I was really taken aback that somebody would ask me this. <laughs> so it really is interesting, and it's a kind of like a nice way to ask it, right? Do you feel safe at home? It's not accusing anybody of anything. So I, I, don't, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence. Maybe there's something I'm overlooking, but I think as you know, I think more and more we are trying to move toward neutral language and you know, for, for sensitive topics.
0: So, Ned, or you just to follow up on that, did you ask that because you might be concerned that there could be some um, adverse consequence? <coughs> that neutral? Yeah. Oh, not at all. I think that's
2: the best way answer that, that, that. We know right now. I guess I'm just thinking again, thinking. You know, we have all this resource available and treatment models and stuff. And coming from, I guess, what I think of as a client centered approach, in terms of thinking of patient readiness to engage or change, how do we increase that? That's more
1: I'm thinking of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important area, obviously, you know, to reach the large number of people who aren't in care, which you don't notice so much when you're doing the care continuum. Um, And, uh, you know... You probably need, so there was someone who did a a review of all studies that have been done about, you know, what's going to help you with uh, engagement and retention. And you really need so many different things to do it. Human beings are impossible. Um, It is human nature not to adhere to treatment. That is just, you could look at any study. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a mental illness. You don't have to have a substance use disorder. It doesn't really matter. Humans, by nature, fall out of care. So you have to understand that you're working against human nature. I say that because, like, for example, I, I once did a review of adherence literature, and most of it's focused on medication rather than, let's say, adherence to visits. But um, there was a group of, uh, there was a study done in, in, uh, I think it was in Sweden. It was somewhere in Scandinavia of men taking their hypertensive medications. And it showed that the first year they had about a 90% adherence rate. And the second year they had about a 66% adherence rate. And the third year they had about a 30% adherence rate. You look at any chronic illness and that's what you'll see. Um, You'll also see that people feel well and they don't really think they need whatever they're taking anymore. So they stop it for that reason. There was a study done with people with epilepsy. You know, why would they stop their anti-epileptic medicine? They haven't had a seizure in a long time. It's just, you know, so when you want to engage people, you're going against something that's it's natural for people to disengage. Um, and I think that's why you want to get involved in patient self-management, and it's also why you want to use every tool you have available. So in this study um, that looked at, the, the study had like 71 recommendations. I think Thompson was the first author of it. Anybody who wants me to follow up with something, I can't tell you right off the top of my head. Let me you know, just email me. Um, so, and it was a study of, you know, of studies in, in, in engagement and retention and care. And you had to do everything. You had to make transportation easy. And you had to do outreach. And you had to treat their mental disorders. And you, you know, it just goes on and on. And that's because you're just working against um, people's natural tendency to drop out. Yes. Uh-
0: about uh, in our use of the screening, we've come across some early challenges with refugees and immigrants um, who are being, some of whom are being administered the screen with English translation, uh, if necessary, or language translation. But we've had, we seem to be noticing just cultural issues, especially with some of our African patients wanting to admit uh, that they have moved, concerns or uh, with some of the labeling, I guess, of the mood concerns in some of our um, Hispanic patients. And so we had agreed, okay, we'll, we'll do the screen and then we'll start analyzing, you know, the quality of the, the data. But you mentioned that you had experience working in in Africa. I'm curious whether...
1: Yeah. So you know what? I, I did work in various countries, but I did my most intensive work in Rwanda. And I, and I basically, in one of my trainings, I actually presented a case of depression and had people use the PHQ-2. So now we're not talking about a patient admitting to symptoms. We're talking about how does a provider, you know, and I presented a severe case of depression to them and had them rate it. And it just barely made it. Into the symptomatic category, which leads me to believe it's not only cultural barriers to the way the person is answering it; it's also a different sense of what suffering is. Um, it is a much higher threshold, you know. If you lived in Rwanda, you have a story to tell that's worse than almost any story that you'll hear from anybody ever living in the United States, and what they consider suffering is different than when we consider suffering. I think that's a piece of it. I'm just saying this off the top of my head, just based on my own personal experience. Um, and, uh, you know, so... In, in, in other cultures, mental illness is... Like, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa and many um, low-income countries, Mental illness is, first of all, epilepsy. And that's why the World Health Organization has created a mental health gap that includes epilepsy, which many people think of as possession. Uh, and, and psychosis. That's what mental illness is. So when I worked in Rwanda, who was in treatment for mental illness? If you asked a mental health nurse that, the, that a nurse, you know, nurses were doing the treatment, two-thirds of the patient had epilepsy. Most of the rest had psychosis. There was a small number of, with depression. So there isn't even a definition that the common disorders that we call mental illness here apply. And here's a final terrible thing to have to say. There are studies that show that as refugees come here, their mental illness gets worse. Now, their mental health gets worse. And I don't know if it's... The longer they stay, the worse they look. I don't know what underlies that finding. I don't know if it's because they learn a vocabulary so they can have mental illness like us. (laughs) Or you know, if in fact it's just dreadful for your mental health to immigrate here, um, but it is interesting that you know um, refugee populations look worse over time in terms of their, uh, in terms of studying their mental health. Anyway, I think it's a very important point to understand where somebody is coming from, and to un- and you know what I what I've done in my own practice is. You know be express my ignorance Um, and I find that is the most successful approach you know I'll say I don't know anything about your culture tell me in your culture would someone consider it such and such a problem Um, and I let them I let them educate me I also treat couples so for example um, I I treated uh, couples who you know were, were from India and in India Parents walk into a couple's bedroom. You know, that's normal. When they get heat, unannounced, no knocking, just they just walk in. I don't know from all of India, but among the couples that I've treated. But when they move to the U.S., they don't want their parents barging into their bedrooms because they've learned, hey, there's something called privacy, you know. So, um, you know, so in asking about that, I'll say, you know, I really don't know what rights parents have in being able to monitor what their children are, or their grown children are doing. Could you explain it? And that's been, to to me, you know. um, You know, some people have talked about cultural humility. You know, I know I'll never understand exactly who who another person is. Not even another person who's just like me. Let alone someone coming from a totally different culture who has first learned a totally different language. So I think cultural humility, as opposed to competence, means that we know we don't understand, and we're going to ask. And and I think that's the most successful approach. You know, I remember once I was treating a couple, um, they were lesbian and they, and they came in and they said to me, they first they went to a specialized place for lesbians and then they didn't like it there. So they came to see me and they said to me, do you know anything about lesbian sex? It was the first lesbian couple i had ever seen. I said, no, I don't know anything. I thought they'd like walk out the room. Well, let us explain to you how lesbian sex works. And they told me this incredible tale about multimedia sex that they have which I have subsequently learned many lesbians do not have, so they were telling me <laughs> their version. They, it took them two hours to have sex. You wouldn't believe what went on during it, the, the, the media parts of it, the music parts of it. And the, so, you know, I, 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 I find that, a lot, that many people are absolutely happy and willing um, to talk to you if, you if you're just honest about your lack of understanding. A question.
2: Yes. How do, you, do you have any tips on <clears throat> convincing somebody to um, re-engage with a mental health um, provider who's either had a bad experience or had a good one and that person left and now they don't want to tell their whole life story and nobody will ever be like so-and-so or that person was really bad so they don't want to see anybody else just to...
1: So for, so, for example, let's say you're working in a setting that has a mental health care provider, you know, um, you might, for example, just walk the person over and say, I, you know, I, I know you don't really feel positive about getting more mental health treatment, but let me introduce you to our mental health care provider. This is really a lovely person. Sometimes simple things like that. Or if they're going to go to another site, let me walk you over to the site. I think you'll really find, this is, of course, if people are really nice there. I think you'll really find that there are nice people there. Or you could do it the other way. The next time you come, I'm going to invite in just for a few minutes, just so you meet this, per, you know, um, one of our mental health providers. Uh, you know, one of the things that we found when we, so, you know, there's a high rate of dropout from, when you discharge somebody from a psychiatric inpatient unit to outpatient care. That's another high rate of dropout. We found that simply by, in, by walking the person over to the mental health clinic and showing them where it is and introducing them, we got a much better rate of people reconnecting. So you want to think of that human touch that makes it out, is not a scary unknown. Well, thank you, Deb. Thank you so much.